This podcast records Gladly University's top-notch child welfare trainings and turns them into digestible and easy-to-consume information to help you be more equipped as a parent, child welfare specialist, counselor, social worker, or a human navigating this world. Sit back, get comfy, and get ready to learn. Enjoy. Welcome to Gladney University. This training is called Genetics, Genetic Testing, and Caregiving. Our speaker's name is Dr. Shia Morali. Dr. Morali is a pediatric geneticist working at Texas Children's Hospital, where she sees patients with a wide array of suspected or diagnosed genetic disorders. Her interest in genetics blossomed when she was a teenager, and her work is characterized by a deep interest in family dynamics and inheritance, both biological and otherwise. We hope you enjoy this program. Happy learning. Today I'll be speaking about genetics, genetic uh, genetic testing and inheritance and what it all means. So first of all, I wanted to start with some disclosures. I have no conflicts of interest to disclose, um, but I did want to say that the information and opinions expressed during this presentation are my own. They don't represent any institutions that I'm affiliated with, and they don't represent any of the companies that may be discussed. So first of all, I wanted to take a step back and just describe the biology. Um, And I'll try to make this as understandable as possible because I know it can be pretty abstract. First of all, what is DNA? You guys are probably familiar with the DNA double helix. It's this image right here. And the double helix is basically, you know, this set of this molecule that contains information and conveys it in a certain way. And so part of it is that each of each of our DNA double helices, each one of these little bars here is represented by a letter. So these are called DNA nucleotides. And it's a four letter code, A, T, C, and G. And they bind to each other in a certain way. And the sequence of that code tells us how to make different parts of our body. So what does DNA do and how does it do that? You guys may remember learning in biology that DNA gets turned into something called RNA, which is kind of like DNA, but only one strand instead of two strands. And then from RNA, it turns into protein. And so this is kind of what's called the central dogma of biology. It's how we make all the parts of our body using the instructions inside our cells. And so, like I said, you go from DNA to RNA to protein, and then you end up with the human body. Now, of course, the problem is this is all pretty abstract. So I like to think of it in terms of metaphors. And one big metaphor that I like to use is that genes are like recipes. So imagine you have a recipe for a cookie. The gene is the recipe. And using that recipe, you translate it into making the final product, which is a protein. And so, These recipes that we have inside our bodies, they're genes, they're arranged into cookbooks, and those cookbooks are what we call chromosomes. You get one set of cookbooks from mom, one set of cookbooks from dad. And those are kind of like family recipes for every dish that you have. And so you can have, you can imagine you have a bookshelf full of chromosomes or cookbooks from your mother, and a bookshelf full of chromosomes from your father or cookbooks. Now, like we talked about, we have genes throughout our body, We get one set of genes from mom, one set of genes from dad. So these two bookshelves, these sets of cookbooks, they're the exact same cookbooks, but they may have different tweaks to each recipe because they come from different families. Like I said, the cookbooks are called chromosomes. Some of you may have seen images like this. So these are actually all the chromosomes in a human body um, that are arranged. And so we number them based on how big the chromosomes are. And like you see, there's two pairs or two sets of chromosome one, two of chromosome two, and so on all the way down to X and Y, which are the sex chromosomes. And for this particular person, this is a a male because there's an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. So we've gone through all of that biology really quickly. So let's using a four letter code, that A, T, C, and G that we had talked about, DNA makes genes that act like recipes. And those recipes tell us how to make the different parts of our body. Everybody has two copies of pretty much every gene. And we get one set from mom, one set from dad, like a set of family recipes. Our, our genes are arranged into cookbooks called chromosomes, and we have 23 pairs of each of those for a total of 46. So now that we've talked about how things are supposed to work, let's talk about how things can go wrong. And so we'll talk, talk about it by levels. We'll start with the cookbooks, then we'll go down to the inside each cookbook and so on. So let's talk about the bookshelves. So when you look at the bookshelves, you may have one too many cookbooks of something. So say for one particular chromosome, instead of having just two copies, you have an extra copy that didn't that either came from mom or dad, but it's an extra copy. On the other hand, you could also have one too few cookbooks. So you could have mom's copy present, but be missing dad's copy. And so these are things that can actually happen in, in humans, in us. And so here's an example. 
So for Down syndrome, many of you have probably heard of this condition. It's called Down syndrome or trisomy 21. And it's a very common genetic condition. And it occurs because you have three copies of cookbook number 21. So you're supposed to have two. People with Down syndrome have an extra one. There's another condition that you may not have heard of because it's not as common and just not necessarily as noticeable. And it's called Turner syndrome. And Turner syndrome is this condition where a woman has only one copy of cookbook or chromosome number X. So women are supposed to have two Xs. People with Turner syndrome only have one. So we've talked about what can go wrong on the bookshelf level when you're just looking at the bookshelf, looking for the number of cookbooks. Now going a little bit deeper, some, else, some other stuff can go wrong. One thing is that you can take a cookbook out of the bookshelf and you can notice that there are missing pages. And so that's one version. And you can imagine if you can miss pages, the opposite can happen where extra pages can be stuck into a cookbook. And so both of these things happen in humans as well. And like I said, there are examples. And so here are some examples. Um, there's a condition called 22Q11 microdeletion syndrome. It's a fairly common genetic syndrome, although genetic syndromes are rare overall, so you may not have heard about it. And people with 22Q have a missing chunk of cookbook number 21. There's another condition called Pataki-Lupski syndrome. It's even more rare than 22Q. And these children have an extra chunk of cookbook number 17. And so as you can see, you can have missing or extra. They can occur in different chromosomes. And there's different ways we identify exactly what region that's in. So we talked about things on the level of the cookbooks themselves. We talked about opening up the cookbooks and looking at the pages. And now we can go all the way down to the recipe, to the gene. So in addition to all those different changes that we talked about, we can have spelling changes in a gene. For instance, just like we know how to spell the word, the words thank you, we may look through that spelling and notice, hey, there's a spelling change here where the N was turned into an R. The same thing happens in genes. So we have genes and we know how they're supposed to be spelled for the most part. So A, T, C, G, and so on. And so you may replace the G with an A or a C with a T or so on. And so those types of changes are spelling changes in genes. Now, we've talked about the ways that there can be genetic differences. So on the level of the number of cookbooks, on the level of the pages, or on the level of the recipes themselves. But now we're going to talk about the types of genetic differences. So let's go back to the recipe analogy. So if you have a cookie and you have a recipe for a cookie, there's a couple of different ways that a recipe can change, right? It's not just one type of change. For instance, you can take white sugar and turn it into brown sugar in the recipe. You could take white sugar and turn it into honey or you could take white sugar and turn it into salt. So all of these are different changes that occur in the recipe, but as you can imagine, they have different levels of impact on the person. So we all have changes in our genes. Going back to kind of that family recipe analogy, if you think of our genes like recipes that make our bodies, they're all unique because they come from different families. And so those changes, most of them, they just make us unique, but there are some genetic changes. Well, the vast majority of those unique changes that make us different, are benign, they're common changes, they're present in a lot of people, and they don't have any impact on the person's medical health. And so that's like taking white sugar and turning it into a brown sugar. It may taste a little bit different, but the cookie's still a cookie. It still tastes good, it still tastes sweet, and it's gonna do the job that it's supposed to do. You can have different types of changes that are called pathogenic or disease-causing. So they'll definitely cause a problem. So an example of that is taking white sugar and turning it into salt. Now, that's really an obvious change. Anyone looking at that recipe or doing that recipe or chasing that cookie can tell something went wrong here. And so these are changes that are not ambiguous. It's very obvious that there's a problem. And there's an intermediate type of genetic change that's called a variant of uncertain significance or VUS is the term that a lot of us use. And that's like turning white sugar into honey. It's a change. We're not sure what impact it'll have. So maybe the honey will make it not taste the way it's supposed to. Maybe it'll mean that the batter consistency doesn't come out right. Maybe it doesn't bake at the right temperature so the final texture isn't correct. And so all of those possibilities are there, but just by looking at the change on the recipe, we can't tell if it's gonna be a problem or not. So all these different types of changes can occur on all the different levels that we talked about. And these changes in our genes, they can be inherited from our parents, like we talked about. It's a family recipe that's passed down or they can be new in you yourself or in the child. And so, you know, you may have a recipe from your mom for a cookie and you like to put a different type of spice in it than your mom usually does. That's like having a new change in a family recipe. And so those changes can occur every single time a child is formed um, through egg and sperm. And so those changes are possible. So I guess what I'm trying to say is 
not all of genetic diseases are actually inherited. When we think about inherited, we think about coming from the parent, but there are some genetic diseases where it's a new change in the child and the parents don't have any of these changes in themselves. So talking about the different types of genetic testing, we've talked about all the different types of genetic changes that can occur, the impacts they can have, but how do we actually look for these changes? And so when we're talking about types of genetic testing, I like to differentiate between clinical genetic testing and non-clinical genetic testing. So clinical genetic testing is the kind of stuff that I do in my profession. So it's ordered by a healthcare professional, whether a physician or a counselor, um, somebody who has know-how of genetics. And there's various reasons that a person might want to order clinical genetic testing. It could be because the person coming to them has a medical problem. It could be because they have a family history of medical problems, like their parents had these things or their siblings had these things. And it could also be for screening. So they themselves don't have a medical issue right now, but they're saying, you know, do I have a risk of developing early breast cancer? Do I have a risk of having a child who has certain medical problems or genetic problems? And so we can't test for every single thing. We can't predict, you know, if you're gonna get diabetes, we can't predict if you're gonna have high blood pressure, but we can predict some things based on our genetic knowledge. And so sometimes we do screening tests for that. Now moving on to non-clinical genetic testing, these things are done in kind of a different context than medicine. And so they're done outside the healthcare setting and there's different reasons for testing. They can include things like paternity tests. And so when we're trying to check if a father is a father, biological father of a child, we're actually doing genetic testing. We could do uh, genetic testing for forensics. And so, you know, you hear about killers being caught on DNA and stuff like that. So that kind of testing can happen too. And lastly, people do it for recreation, like the popular DNA kits that we all know about. And so um, we'll kind of start by focusing on clinical genetic testing and then understanding how that works. And then later on, we'll move on to non-clinical. So the types of clinical genetic tests talked about how genes exist on these different levels. And so all the way up at the top, there's two bookshelves full of cookbooks that you get from mom and dad. And so you can check and see, just look at the cookbooks and see how many cookbooks are missing extra, whether they're all there and so on. And that test is done by something called a karyotype. Now, the other type of test we can do on going down a little bit further, drilling down a little bit, you can take each bookshelf off the, or each cookbook off the bookshelf and rifle through the pages and say, are there missing or extra chunks of pages? That type of test is called a chromosomal microarray or CMA. And lastly, you can get all the way down to the recipe level or the gene level and check the spelling. So you can check, is there salt where there should be sugar? Is there a C where, where there should be a G and so on. And so that type of testing is called sequencing testing. So all of these different testing techniques um, are available. And even within sequencing, there's different types of sequencing we can do. So we can choose to look only at one gene and say, we're only worried about this one thing. We're not gonna look at everything else. We just wanna look for this one thing. You could look at a bunch of genes that cause similar medical problems. So maybe somebody comes for a family history of breast cancer. So you can look at several genes at the same time that may predispose to breast cancer. Or you can look at every single gene in the body, um, and that's something called whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing. So all those different types of tests are available, and that's why it's important to talk to a geneticist or somebody who has genetics knowledge to figure out what testing is appropriate for you or for your child. So talking about which children, um, you know, children in genetic testing, there are certainly children who may need clinical genetic testing. Of course, I see those types of patients. And so I wanted to give you guys some examples of patients who may benefit from genetic testing. Now, you know, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, and not every single person who's mentioned on this list needs genetic testing, but they may all benefit from having a discussion about it. And so one example is children who are born with differences in their body's formation. So for instance, if a child is born with a cleft lip or a cleft palate, maybe a difference in the way their kidney is shaped or a difference in their heart structure or hole in their heart, things like that. Those kids may benefit from genetic testing because sometimes there's a genetic reason for those differences. Other children who might benefit are those with significant developmental problems. So if a child is walking really, really late, talking really, really late, not learning the way they should be, not able to keep up or diagnosed with intellectual disability, all those kids may benefit from genetic testing because there may be a genetic cause for what's going on. And lastly, kids with issues like chronic issues, things like a seizure disorder, autism spectrum disorder, really bad growth problems where they're just not tall enough, they're just not putting on weight no matter what you do. So all these different kind of categories of children may benefit from genetic testing. 
and it's worthwhile talking to a pediatrician and seeing if that would be worth doing. Now, there are other children who may not need genetic testing. Um, you know, when you talk to a geneticist, we think that everything has some genetic component for the most part, but not everything is genetic in the way that we can test for it directly. And that's because, you know, the genetic contribution of different diseases can be can be variable. For some diseases, it can be all genetic contribution that causes you to have it. For others, it could be genetic contribution very little that causes you to have it. So this all depends. So in terms of which children don't need genetic testing right now, kids with food allergies or sensitivities are not kids that I usually see in the clinic. There's not specific genetic tests we do for that. We can't do a test and predict if they're gonna have a food allergy. So they don't really benefit from getting this testing. Um, kids with minor behavioral problems, things like ADHD that you know they can manage well with medication or kids with minor developmental delay. So they may walk at like 15 months, they may talk at 18 months, but then with therapy, they totally catch up and they're totally fine. Those kids probably don't need genetic testing either. And then lastly, kids with family history of substance abuse or psychiatric issues, we don't usually do testing for those kids because, you know, we think there are some genetic components, again, to being more at risk for psychiatric issues or more at risk for substance abuse. But we can't predict that with any kind of uh, degree of certainty. And so it's not worthwhile to test a kid who has no problems themselves. And in fact, even adults who have these issues, we don't necessarily do genetic testing on them. And lastly, children entering new adoptive families. Now, sometimes I definitely see kids who have been adopted from, you know, either within the United States or from another country. And, you know, we do genetic testing on them sometimes. And that can be because they're really developmentally delayed and they're still not catching up, even though they've gotten lots of, you know, educational education, therapy and stuff with their new families. Um, it could be a family where the child was born with a, with a difference in their body formation. So born with a cleft lip, born with a heart structural abnormality. So those kids certainly um, can benefit from genetic testing. But just because they're entering a new adoptive family doesn't mean that they would benefit from testing. They have to have kind of another reason for testing. So now that we've talked about who may need genetic testing, let's talk about what genetic testing can do. So once the child gets genetic testing, what might be the possible outcomes? So one of them is that you may find a diagnosis, which of course is a big goal, um, and that would make a difference in the child's life. It would help you connect with other families who may have the similar diagnosis. It may help you understand what things are going to be happening in the future and so on. If we find a diagnosis, we may say, you know, your child may have seizures in the future or your child may have an abnormal heart rhythm. You know, go see these specialists so you can look for those things. You can start to monitor. You can start medication. Things like that are possible. Sometimes we add new therapies or medications based on the results of genetic testing. You know, we hear a whole lot about gene therapy and all that stuff right now, and it's a very active field of research. There are very, very few genetic conditions where there's a specific targeted therapy to fix the genetic problem. We do have genetic conditions where we have, a, um, you know, when we know that they may have a problem in the future, we can start to proactively address it. But for the most part, most of our genetic diagnoses, we can't fix the genetic problem. We just kind of treat the symptoms that go along with it. And lastly, if you get a genetic diagnosis, there may be implications for family members. And so siblings, parents, you know, things like that matter. And also sometimes if a child is diagnosed with a genetic condition, then the parents may know what is the likelihood that we'll have another child who's affected with the same condition. So all that stuff, you know, can happen. And these are all reasons why genetic testing can be very useful and can have a big impact on families. So say you think your child may need genetic testing. How would you go about trying to get that? Now, this is again, clinical genetic testing, not non-clinical. So in terms of clinical genetic testing, first up, start with talking to their pediatrician. Does the pediatrician think they need it? You know, these pediatricians see tons and tons of patients all the time. And so they're just very familiar with typical development, kids who have different growth issues and so on. And so they may be able to say, hey, yeah, your child is a little bit different. And so maybe they could benefit from some more evaluation. If your pediatrician thinks that the child needs a, a genetic evaluation, you'll probably get referred to a geneticist and see a geneticist. And they'll talk to you a lot about the child's history, pregnancy history, birth history, family history, we'll get as much detail as possible. Now, of course, in some families, we're not able to get all those details because of different family dynamics and so on. We don't need all that information, but we try to gather as much as we can. And then once we get all the information, we examine the child, we kind of make a hypothesis as to what might be going on, and then we decide what testing to send. Once we decide what testing to send, we have to ask the insurance for approval most of the time because it's just a more expensive test and that's just the way the process works. Typically, insurances don't give us a lot of trouble if it's a reasonable test to do. And so once that insurance approval is there, 
we usually contact our patients and we say, hey, you know, go here and do a blood sample for your child or send in a saliva sample and so on. And so that process has to happen. I think a lot of times when people hear about genetic testing, they think it's a very invasive type of test, but it's actually not so much. It's either blood or saliva. So it's no more invasive than a typical test would be. And then once the results are back, the geneticist will call you again and reach out to you, explain the results. You may find a diagnosis, you may find nothing, you may find something that's an in-between kind of maybe question. And so all of those things will be discussed after the testing results come back. So we've talked about clinical genetic testing so far. So this is testing that happens, you know, in the context of healthcare, ordered by a healthcare professional and done for specific indications. Now we're gonna move on to non-clinical genetic testing. And, you know, the examples I gave on that first slide, I talked about non-clinical genetic testing being used for paternity tests. It could be used for forensics, and it can also be used for recreation. And so we're gonna focus on the recreation aspect in terms of DNA kits and so on. So you guys have probably all heard about these DNA kits that are available out there. So things like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, and even Embark is a DNA test that you can do for a dog. I did that for my dog. So all these different DNA kits are available out there and people, you know, do them and they sometimes base medical medical decisions on them and so on. So we're going to talk about these tests and kind of the pros and cons of doing them and do's and don'ts as well. So first of all, let's talk about, uh, let's have you guys answer this question. Have you or someone you know, uh, excuse me, have you ever done a DNA kit for someone you know or for your family? And there's no right or wrong answer to this. It's just interesting to see. We have a couple of responses so far. Okay. So it's almost 50-50, more like 40-60. So it seems like, you know, some people have done DNA kits for their family, some people haven't. Um, and I think it's just interesting to hear about in the general population, um, tons of people have done them. So it'll be useful to talk through how the technology works and so on. So when we talk about non-clinical genetic testing, we talked about clinical genetic testing before where you can test the karyotype, which is looking at the bookshelves to make sure all the cookbooks are there. You can open up at the cookbook and look for missing or extra pieces or missing or extra extra pages. And that's called the chromosomal microarray. You could also look all the way down to the recipe level and look for spelling changes in the recipe. And that's called sequencing. So those are the type of tests that are typically used for clinical genetic testing. When it comes to non-clinical genetic testing, they test for different types of things. And so they look for things like single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, restriction fragment length polymorphisms or RFLPs and short tandem repeats, or STRs. These are all big terms. I'll try to explain them as best as possible. So we talked about how the genetic code is a sequence of letters, A, T, C, G, and so on. So with single nucleotide polymorphisms, what that means is at one particular letter, at one particular location, we have coordinates to where the different stuff is within DNA, similar to how you have coordinates for a map or a GPS. So we can say at this particular coordinate, this particular um, nucleotide or base, the letter in the code, is supposed to be A. But we can say, you know, for a good proportion of the population, 10%, 5%, 30%, those people have T instead right there. And so that's what's called a single nucleotide polymorphism. So it's at one particular location, single nucleotide, and polymorphism just means a change that's common in the population. And so that's what that test is. Now, restriction fragment length polymorphisms, or RFLPs, they actually use single nucleotide polymorphism technology, but they're adding another layer to it. And so our, in the world, we have bacteria, we all know about that. And one thing that bacteria have learned how to do is to cut um, DNA at certain, at certain sequences. So they can say, what I see in A, T, C, G, I cut between the C and the G. And so when we do RFLP testing, what we do is we know at this location, some people have a C, some people have a T. If there's a C there, the bacteria will cut it. And so when we look at the final product, it'll look different. Whereas if there's a T there, the bacteria won't cut it. And so people, you can differentiate between people who have different SNPs based on that. And so that's what RFLPs do. And then short tandem repeats are a different type of thing. So we talked about how there's four letters in the DNA code. Sometimes those letters can repeat again and again. So you can have ATG, 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 ATG. And for some people that happens 15 times in a row. For some people, that's 50 times in a row. And so you can use short tandem repeats to say, you know, for this proportion of the population, they have this many repeats, this proportion has that many repeats, and so you can differentiate between people based on that. So as you can see, these are all very common changes that we look for. 
Now, I talked you through all of this and I explained it, but just like before, well, actually one thing to say is that single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs are the primary technology that's being used on these DNA kits. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in detail. But like we said, all this explanation, you know, I went through all the biology of it, but it's all pretty abstract again. So let's go back to that cookie. So when we have a recipe for a cookie, right? We may have a different recipe in our in different families, or we may find a different recipe from one website versus another website. And so you can imagine that there's lots of different variations that you can make to the chocolate chip cookie recipe. For instance, you may use white sugar, another person may use brown sugar. You may use cinnamon, another person may use nutmeg. You may use butter, another person may use olive oil. And if these examples don't make sense, please forgive me, I'm not a big baker. But all that is to say is that you can make all these different changes to the recipe, but it's still gonna be a chocolate chip cookie recipe. It still does the job it's supposed to do at the end. Now, if you took a poll of the whole community and you say how many people use white sugar in their chocolate chip cookie recipe and how many use brown sugar, you'll probably find you know, there's a good proportion of people who use both types. They're both very common variations. And so just by looking for whether a person uses white sugar or brown sugar, you can't say, okay, only one family will be like that. It's gonna be lots and lots of families. So if you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, you have to add other layers of criteria that you're looking for. So when we do single nucleotide polymorphism or SNP testing, we look for, is there white sugar or brown sugar here? Is there cinnamon or nutmeg here? Is there olive oil or butter here? Is there you know, um, salt or sugar there? So we add in all these different variations and they're all very common variations, but if you add them all and stack them and stack them and stack them and stack them, you can imagine that only a few people will have a very specific combination that you're looking for. And so that's the way the SNP type of testing works. It looks for common variations, but in combinations that make them unique for certain people. And so talking about SNPs, these common variations, how can they affect us? For many of these SNPs, they don't affect us at all. They can just identify us as unique. And so we may, you know, we don't, we all have SNPs in our body. That's just the way we are because we're all unique. And we can all walk around having them and never know that we have them at all. They don't affect us whatsoever. Sometimes they can give us certain traits though. So they may not be, when we talk about the term trace, usually the way it's used in genetics, especially in medical genetics, are things that are benign, things that are different about a person, but don't necessarily give them a problem. So for instance, um, this is a picture of cilantro, which many people may know that some people really love cilantro and some people absolutely hate it. They just cannot bear to eat it. And I'm actually one of those people. I hate the taste of cilantro, I've always hated it. I've never been able to get myself to enjoy it or appreciate it. And the reason for this, it turns out, is because of a snip. And so those people who really hate the taste of cilantro, there's a protein that codes for a smell receptor in our noses. And that smell receptor has a particular SNP in it that if you have that SNP, then you have that hatred of cilantro. And so it's really interesting how these SNPs, you know, it's not like it causes me a problem. It doesn't make me sick or something, but it makes it so that, you know, I can tell that, you know, I'm unique. If you looked for that SNP in me, you would probably find that. And so this is a good example of how SNPs can affect us. So let's talk about DNA kits and what we can potentially use them for. So recreation is the number one thing. So I personally have done a DNA kit for my dog because I wanted to find out what breeds he was made up of. And so that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the results and it was fun to look at and talk to my friends about it and so on. Ancestry, so a lot of people will use these kits to say, you know, I think I'm Polish, German, Irish, but you know, that's what the family has always said, but let's find out for sure. And so you can do these kits because what they do is they combine all those different common variants, those SNPs, they stack them and stack them and stack them and stack them. And they say, you know, people who have Polish ancestry tend to have this combination of SNPs. People who have German ancestry tend to have this combination. And so they can kind of give you a general prediction of what your ancestry is. And then genetic genealogy is another use of DNA kits. And so some people may have heard about this um, in the context of kind of like forensics, the Golden State Killer and things like that. But the big picture is that you can, you know, stack up all these SNPs and then use them to find out, make big family trees, basically, and say, these people with these SNPs are related to these people with these SNPs through this common ancestor and so on. It's stuff that I haven't been trained in. It's actually a very specific type of genetics, a subfield, but it is a, a, a use of genetic kits. And sometimes these DNA kits can identify a limited number of changes in genes that may cause disease. So we talked about SNPs being common. Sometimes you have not SNPs, but SNBs, single nucleotide variants. 
that can easily be picked up by the same technology that looks for a SNP. So, you know, it's like looking for this particular location. Is there an A or a T there? You can do that test, but that change may not be very common. And that uncommon change may cause disease. And so some of the DNA kits look for specific changes that cause disease. And so sometimes you can learn that information from doing them. Now that we talked about kind of what you can use DNA kits for, I want to talk about what not to use DNA kits for. One thing is the big thing is medical decisions. And so I'll talk to you on the next slides, a couple slides about the reasons to not do that. But definitely, you know, DNA kits should not be used as a substitute for evaluation by a geneticist or as a substitute for clinical genetic testing. If you have one of those reasons for testing that I talked about earlier on, like you were born with a cleft palate or you have a difference in your heart structure or you have a strong family history of breast cancer, you should not be using DNA kits to give you that answer. You should be doing clinical genetic testing because it's more comprehensive and thorough. And we'll talk about the reasons why. So, oh, let me talk about why not. And so I wanted to give a couple of examples from the, from the media that you know, should give you some cause for caution about DNA kits. So when you look up identical twin ancestry DNA kits or something, you find several news stories that are like this. So this set of identical twins one was named Carly, one was named Charlesy, I think. Um, they know they're identical and they did these a DNA kit. I forget which company they used, but they did a DNA kit. And then they found that they got different responses for the percent ancestry they have. So, you know, one person was told that they had some French and German ancestry. The other twin didn't get that at all. One twin said they were 13% quote broadly European. The other twin got a much less percentage of that. And so these discrepancies can occur when we do these testings, and it's partly because it's not as thorough as it, as it could be. And also, you know, this is kind of a little bit more, this, you know, this example over here was a little bit more kind of an interesting, a curiosity, but this example here is um, really a, a cautionary tale. And so they looked at, you know, this is a New York Times article that I found from a few years ago. They looked at 100, they reported on a medical study that looked at 100,000 people. And it found that 90% of participants who carried a BRCA mutation, so BRCA, you guys have probably heard about that, is BRCA1 and BRCA2. Those are two genes where if you have certain spelling changes in those genes, you have a much, much higher risk of breast and ovarian cancer, as well as some other cancers. And so what they did was they looked at 100,000 people and they knew that some of those people had the BRCA mutation. They had found that on genetic testing, probably clinical genetic testing. And they said, of those people, 90% of them would not have gotten, would have taken the 23andMe test and it said they don't have the BRCA mutation. And so that's pretty scary, right? So if you think you might have that risk in your family and then you do this test and it tells you, no, you don't, it may not actually be accurate. So we'll talk about the reasons for that too. So why are there discrepancies in this? First of all, is that genetics is complicated. We have 3 billion letters in our genetic code and these DNA kits sample only a fraction of those letters. You can imagine if there's 3 billion letters, even if they're looking at 100,000 letters or 700,000 letters, that's still a really small portion compared to the entirety of the genetic code. So when you're looking at a sample that may not be fully representative, you may get you know, mismatched ancestry between twins, or you may only look for specific types of genetic changes that occur in specific people and miss other genetic changes that are also in different groups of people. So to talk back about the BRCA changes, what it is is that I think the 23andMe test, what it does is it looks for specific spelling changes in the BRCA1 and 2 genes, and it looks for those spelling changes that are common in people of Jewish ancestry. And so it knows about these spelling changes, is able to look for them, but other people who don't have Jewish ancestry can still have spelling changes in BRCA that still put them at risk of cancer, but those spelling changes wouldn't be picked up by the test that that 23andMe does because it only looks for one specific change. It's like saying, I'm looking for an A to a T at this location. That's the only thing I'm looking for. If it's not there, I'm not gonna say it's there. But you know, four, four letters behind or four letters ahead, there may be another A to a T that's really important, but it wouldn't pick that up. So you know, these tests, they're not necessarily inaccurate. They're doing the job they're supposed to do, but they may not be complete. So they're looking only for a specific thing they're not looking at everything. So sometimes you miss stuff. The reason for that missing, that kind of incompleteness, we'll talk about that. This is kind of in the way the testing works. And so when we talk about clinical genetic testing, we remember that we can look at the bookshelf and we can look for missing or extra entire cookbooks or chromosomes. We can take a bookshelf or cookbook off the shelf and look for missing or extra chunks of chromosomes or genes. So the 
top test is called a karyotype. We talked about that. The second test is called a chromosomal microarray. It kind of looks at more detail. And then lastly, we can spell check the entire gene. And when you go to a geneticist, they can decide, okay, this child would benefit from the karyotype. No, this child needs the chromosomal microarray. No, this child should get spelling check of one gene or 20 genes or every gene. And so that's why it's really important to have a professional thinking about this to figure out what test is right for what patient and making sure the correct test is ordered and a test that's thorough is ordered. Whereas DNA kits, they, they're good at what they do, but what they do is they have a very targeted approach. It's like if you're looking in a story for a particular word and you just control F for that word all the way through the story. So say you're looking for the word blue and you find all the instances of blue, but you miss blue-green. You miss aqua, you miss, you know, powder blue, or I guess you probably picked that up because of blue, but you miss cyan, right? So you miss all these different versions of the same thing. So if you're only looking for one specific thing, you're bound to miss stuff, especially when you're dealing with something as big and complex as DNA, three billion letters. And so I'm reaching up the end, so hopefully we'll have plenty of time for questions. So in terms of take home messages from what we discussed, our genes are like recipes. They're arranged onto 23 pairs of cookbooks, one set from mom, one set from dad, kind of like 23 matched family recipe cookbooks. There are many types of genetic changes and many types of genetic tests that are available, like we talked about. And a physician can help you decide if you or your child needs clinical genetic testing. Non-clinical genetic testing like DNA kits, forensics, and so on, those can be interesting, but should never be used as a substitute for clinical genetic testing ordered by a physician. So if you feel like I should probably get genetic testing for this particular thing, don't depend on one of those DNA kits to do the work that it should do, or it'll do the work that it should, that it can do, that it should do, but it won't be able to do all the work that needs to be done for clinical genetics. So those are all my take home messages. I hope that I conveyed this in a way that's kind of understandable. I know it's a lot of information, so um, I'd like to take questions now with the picture of my dog. Now I want cookies and all the baked goods. So I know when I was making this recipe or this, um, when I was making this, this slideshow, I had a lot of trouble with uh, cravings. <laughs> yes, of course, I love it. It's a really good, it's a very easy way to kind of understand something that can be very like complicated. So thank you very much for that. Of course, yeah, I've been working on this metaphor for a long time, so I'm, I think it's ready for prime time. <laughs> yeah, got it. <laughs> okay, we do have a few questions. Um, what does it mean when there is reference to mosaic gene? Ah, that's a good point. So we didn't cover mosaicism at all. So mosaic actually, let's, let me think about how to represent it. So, you know, all our DNA is wrapped up into chromosomes and those chromosomes live inside our nucleuses of our cells, right? So if you remember back to high school biology, we have cells that make up all the different parts of our body. And so sometimes people can have genetic changes that occur only in certain parts of their body. So you may have a genetic change just in your leg and that makes one leg grow bigger than the other leg. You may have a genetic change just in your brain and that makes it so that you have a brain malformation right there, but everywhere else is fine. So that is called being mosaic. And so you can think of a person like a mosaic made up of a bunch of cells and the cells that have the genetic change have a different color than the cells that don't. And so, when a person is mosaic, they have a combination of cells that don't have a change and do have a change. Genes themselves aren't really mosaic, but you can have changes that are mosaic within genes. Or you can even have mosaic Down syndrome. You can have mosaic Turner syndrome. So you can have mosaicism at every different level. Um, can clinical DNA testing help determine which psychotropic medications are best for each individual? That's a good question. So that kind of goes into the realm of pharmacogenomics which you know just combines pharmacy and genetics or genomics um and that's something that we're still you know i don't have a lot of experience with it i don't do that type of testing i know that some i think psychiatrists and some practices do it i haven't looked at it recently so i don't understand the full evidence of it but there are some genetic changes that we know affect the way your body processes different medicines and so some people may have heard about plavix it's a very common drug that's used for people who have blood clots right and so there's a very common genetic change, like a SNP, that occurs in the population where if you have that SNP, Plavix just doesn't really work for you. And so sometimes before doing certain tests, they'll do genetic testing to see if you have that SNP. And then that will help them determine, you know, whether this drug will work for you or not. Similar things happen in cancer genetics. And so they'll say, if you have a specific genetic change in cancer, then you can use this drug for your cancer. If you don't have that change, it's not going to work for you. 
So I know that some of the testing is done in terms of psychotropic medication. I just don't know the full evidence of it. So it may, it may not be that it won't work. It may just be that it may work better or worse, but I just, I don't know the full evidence. Yeah, there's a lot of like outpatient and inpatient psychiatric hospitals that will use those, especially if patients have been on a lot of medications over a long period of time, just to kind of weed out what does and doesn't work. Um, yeah, but yeah interesting. Um, what did you find out about your dog? Oh yeah, that's a good question. So I should have put, I tried to put up the image of his little breakdown, but they didn't do a good job with it. So he has some poodle in him. He has about 30% poodle. Reportedly, he has about 30% Chihuahua, but the pers the the dog owner in me plus the geneticist in me is a little skeptical of that because I feel like he doesn't have those qualities. Um, and he has um, some uh, Maltese and he has some American Eskimo dog. So I think that's why he where he gets the white, white fur. <laughs> awesome. He's a cutie. <laughs> he was quiet today. I'm proud of him. <laughs> Um, there's a question that came in. We have adult adoptees who want medical background all the time, and we do not have records from birth parents. What is the best option for them? Yeah, you know, this is something that can be tricky. So, you know, the problem with, not the problem, but the way genetics is right now, we're not able to use genetics to kind of be a crystal ball. We're able to use it to kind of answer a specific question, like why does this child have a cleft palate or something like that? But it's not great at saying, you know, you're adopted, you don't know your family history, but, you know, here's your risk of having cancer. You know, we just aren't able to do that right now. And so if a person doesn't have specific medical history, it doesn't make sense to screen them for specific genetic disorders. Now, one option that is available is something called preconception or prenatal genetic testing. So carrier screening. So that's where we talked about how there's two copies of every gene. Right. And so for some genetic disorders, you have one copy of the gene not working and that gives you a medical problem. So an example of that is sickle cell disease or cystic fibrosis. So people have probably heard about some of those for some genetic. Those disorders are called autosomal dominant. So if you have that genetic change, even if you're adopted, you're going to know it because you have the disease. Right now, it's possible that you have um, you are a carrier for something called an autosomal recessive disease. Now, those are diseases where, like I said, we have two copies of every gene both copies have to not be working for us to have a medical problem. So we can walk around with one copy working and it's doing all the work for us and we're healthy, but one copy doesn't work. Now say you have that and you don't know anything about your family history. And this can happen even with people who don't, who aren't adopted. It could just be a new change in you that it never caused a problem for anyone else. But so maybe you're walking around like this, you're a carrier, you have one copy that doesn't work, one copy that does work, and you meet and you fall in love with someone who has one copy that works and one copy that doesn't. And you guys would both not know that unless there was a family history on either side of the family. So you can do something called carrier screening that's available through prenatal genetic counselors. People who have OBGYNs and stuff can ask for a referral. Sometimes OBGYNs do that testing themselves. You can do it before you even have a baby. You can do it while you're pregnant. You can even do it after if you wanted to, if you're thinking about more children. But if you do that test, you know, they'll run different genes. So they'll choose which genes to run. Sometimes they do it based on your ethnic background. Sometimes they'll do it based on just universal, there's something called universal carrier screening. So there's a certain number of things that are common in everybody. We just say everybody should get tested for this. Um, and there's some that, you know, you can just test for hundreds of genes. So you can test for all those genes and see if you have spelling changes in them. And it may not affect you personally, but it can tell you, hey, in the future, you know, if your partner also has a spelling change in that exact same gene, you could have a baby who has this problem. So that's mm -hmm. one option. It won't tell you a ton about yourself, but it can tell you about your risks for your children. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, can you provide, oh, um, can you provide typical histories that would benefit from genetic testing specific to developmental delays? Certainly. So very common um, indication for genetic testing is autism spectrum disorder. You know, um, the American College of Medical Genetics, which is our professional society, and a bunch of, I think even the American Academy of Pediatrics, this kind of consensus is that every child with autism spectrum disorder should get some genetic testing. Now, we don't find a cause in every single child, but it's worth doing because sometimes we do, and sometimes that can direct therapy, sometimes that can tell us about issues in the future and so on. So that's one very common cause. Um, I often will see kids, you know, if a kid has mild speech delay in and of itself, that's usually not enough for them to get sent to me. But say they have speech delay and they're not running at the right time and they're also you know in preschool and then they're having trouble with learning so you know usually it has to combine different different elements of development so when you have a child who's developing you think about speech gross motor which is like walking running and fine motor which is like picking up blocks feeding themselves 
So if they have problems in more than one of those elements or more than one of those dimensions, then those kids usually get seen by a geneticist or get referred. So if a child, you know, and the other thing is too, sometimes families say, let's wait it out and see how the kid does in therapy. So if your child gets therapy for those things, and then within six months or a year is making great progress and is totally caught up, then they may not need the testing after all. But if they're not catching up, they're needing a lot of help, if there's multiple things that are not working right, they might benefit. If someone uses a DNA, uses a DNA test to see if they're, oh wait, basically the question is if they do a DNA test to see if they're related to other individuals, could the test be off or wrong? You know, that's a good question. I frankly just, I don't know the technology well enough to comment on that. My mm -hmm. hunch is that it would probably be fairly accurate, but I just, I just don't feel comfortable saying for sure. Do you have an opinion about the issues concerning the use of your personal data by these non-clinical DNA testing companies? This is what keeps me from doing it, especially for my child. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, you know, um, my understanding is that these companies use your personal data in a de-identified way. So they're not saying, you know, Chaya who lives in Houston has this genetic change when they give it to other companies and stuff, but they are using it. And so for, you know, the, there was a drug, I forget what the drug was, but a few months ago, within the last year, there was a drug that was recently approved for a rare disease. Um, or was it, it may have been for a rare disease, it was like maybe a more common autoimmune disease. But either way, it was approved for this condition. And it was actually based somewhat on research that was done through 23andMe. So they had gathered data from their, their sample and said, you know, there's this group of people who have this change. And I'm not sure exactly how they did it, but that's something that has happened. I think it's great that they're using their data to be able to help with drug development and stuff. But I think you kind of have to make your own decision on whether you're willing to let your data be used by a for-profit company to do those things. And so, you know, you can give your DNA to a research effort that's kind of from a nonprofit aspect or, you know, you're still doing it for research, but it's through 23andMe. So it's just kind of a, I think it's a personal value judgment. Um, but I think what they have been using it for so far seems to be pretty uh, good end result. That's cool. Um, can you talk about adoptees using recreational DNA kits to find their genetic family and genetic parents? Are they accurate? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I wish I just, I wish I could answer that better. I'll have to see if I can find any resources about that or information about it. I'm going to write a little blog post for the, for the Gladney blog later on. And so if I find anything about that, I'll put it in there. Um, what do we do first? Developmental pediatrician or geneticist? I would say get yourself on the referral list for both. So geneticists have a long wait list and developmental pediatricians sometimes have an even longer wait list, depending on what location you live in. And so get yourself on the list for both. If you see, you know, a geneticist can't diagnose a child with autism because developmental pediatricians have to do a very specific kind of um, clinical tests to do that. So, you know, we can't answer that question, but we can have a hunch based on the history. We can have a hunch on de the degree of de delay based on the history. Um, and so even if you don't see the developmental pediatrician before you see the geneticist, that's still a good place to start. I think this is the last question. If you guys have more questions, feel free to put those in the um, question box. Uh, clinical DNA testing doesn't get shared due to HIPAA violation. Oh yeah, so clinical DNA testing doesn't get shared with other, so it will get shared with you. It should get shared with you. If you're the person who got the testing, um, your <laughs> provider should share it with you. And sometimes those things get lost in the mix, but usually they don't. Um, and they're protected health information, like you said. So within HIPAA, you know, they stay within the electronic medical record or the medical record that your, you know, provider uses, and they're not shared widely among people. If your genetic testing results are used for kind of a research perspective or something, that would not be used until you they get permission from you. And so we have to have you sign consent forms and stuff like that. That's fairly uncommon, but it is something that happens sometimes. But it's protected. It's protected health information. And in fact, we didn't cover this before, but there's something called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA. It's a law that was passed, I wouldn't say in the 2000s or 90s, so it's a pretty old law now, um, that says that based on genetic testing results, people can't get discriminated on in terms of their job, their employment, um, health insurance, and things like that. So if you have a genetic change, that can't be a, like, um, I think we technically don't have um, pre-existing conditions anymore, but if that were to come back, that couldn't be a problem from a genetic perspective. The only thing that certain genetic changes can affect, and not all, but certain, is like long-term death and disability, I think. Um, and so say you find out that you may have Huntington's disease or some kind of neurodegenerative condition that's genetic, sometimes that can make it tricky to get covered. 
but for everything else, so if your child is diagnosed with 22Q or a child is diagnosed with Down syndrome, that does, should not affect their health insurance at all. Or, and they should not get discriminated against based on it. And if they do, that's illegal. Interesting. Okay. Are there clinical indications for a woman or couple who are having issues conceiving or who, or who, or have had a miscarriage to get genetic testing? That's a great question. So yes, there can be. Typically, if a person has um, what we call multiple miscarriages, so I think of at least two or more, um, it's useful for the parents to get testing. And so this is a little bit abstract, but when we look back at the chromosomes, right, the, the, the karyotype picture, right, all the cookbooks lined up, sometimes what happens is one chunk of a chromosome breaks off and it switches places with another chunk of a chromosome. And that's called a translocation because they're translocated, right? They move different places. And when you have a translocation, you can be perfectly healthy as long as you have all the sections of your chromosomes there. But if you have a child, sometimes you can be passing down chunks of chromosomes that are unbalanced, that the child doesn't have all of them. And so that can cause miscarriages. So sometimes. So that's a good reason to get genetic testing. And usually it's a karyotype, it's that test. Um, for people who are having trouble conceiving in and of itself, Typically, that's not an indication, but those people can still get preconception genetic testing. They can get carrier testing like we talked about. If people do IVF, a lot of times they do genetic testing on the embryos. Um, and that's there's lots of different types within that, but that's all um, possibilities. But if you've had multiple miscarriages, I would say definitely talk to somebody about seeing if you need genetic testing. Any other questions, questions that you guys have? We're getting lots of great feedback. Very knowledgeable, great training. Love this. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, this will be recorded, so I know there was a lot of information, and there's probably some people that are like, oh, wait, let's go back to that. Let me kind of digest that a little bit more. Um, so it will be recorded, and you will get an email with the recording and a link to the evaluation if you need CEU. So fear not. We will definitely um, send this on to you guys. Um, okay. Any other remarks, Dr. Morelli, that you want to share before we end? No, that's it. Thank you so much for your time and attention and for the great questions. And um, hopefully this will continue to be a great resource for you guys. Thank you for tuning in to Gladney University's podcast. We hope you learned something special. To learn more about Gladney, check out our website at gladney.org. You can find this podcast where all the cool podcasts live, Apple, Google, and more. Thanks for joining us.